Hello everyone. Thank you very much for sticking with us for this q and I'm so glad to see so many of you uh, staying put. Um, without further ado, let me greet my two guests up, uh, not on the quite the stage, but at the front. Roberto, please help yourself um, to a seat. And John, in the toilet. In the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> ah. Okay. <laughs> a misfiring introduction there. Um, we'll wait for John. Um, in the meantime, that'll give you a little bit of time to gather your thoughts, um, reflect on, on the film we've just seen, think up some questions, any comments you have as well will be welcome. Um, I'll be sp speaking to Roberto and John, I'll be asking them a few questions and then we'll open it up to the audience. I should mention that this is uh, recorded. Um, we have a sort of podcast for the Garden Cinema, uh, which you can find um, on our main page, gardencinema.co.uk. Uh, we have videos and podcasts. So I will be uh, recording this and introducing this again more formally. Um, if any of you want to speak out and ask a question but don't want to be included in the recording, that's not a problem at all. Just just speak to me at the end um, and I'll just ed edit this out. Um, okay, well, uh, there, John. <laughs> he returned. Oh, John gets his own little uh, jazz <laughs> intro. I don't know what's <laughs> happened there. <laughs> there we go. I, this is my plan B for recording. I, I never trust the... Oh, mine. Uh, is, is, is it good now? Um, yes. So uh, thank you very much, John, for joining us. Start there again. Um, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Garden Cinema. That was Chicago Boys to mark the 50th anniversary of the coup in Chile. And the screening was organized in collaboration with Alborada. So thank you very much to the team behind Alborada. And um, we are here joined after the film uh, for a Q&A with uh, jo uh, journalist John McAvoy and um, uh, scientist, there I say, scientist and researcher and ex-political um, prisoner, uh, Roberto Navarrata. So thank you so much to our two guests. Um, I'll let you grab a mic each. And after this, we will be opening, opening, opening it up to the audience uh, for a for some comments and questions and so on. Um, first of all, watching this, I wanted to ask um, you, uh, Roberto, really, um, what the impact of those neoliberal policies, we see them very clearly in the first years after the coup, but where are we at today? How have they uh, infused in the kind of the, the daily life of the country over the years? Is their impact still very much felt? Um, or has it changed over the years? W where are we at with, with, with the consequences of this neoliberal um, school of thought? Okay, so, um, is, is, can you hear me? No. No? Okay. Um, the mic should be on. I can... Not at all. I Hello? Will just okay, I'll try that one. Okay, so the question is, uh, does neoliberalism exist in Chile today as it was planned by the Chicago boys that you saw in the film? And the answer is emphatically yes, because a process of political change, I mean, I am a scientist of uh, the biological sciences and uh, neuroscience in particular, and to me it is inconceivable that people can think that a um, subject such as economics is detached from politics, yeah. which are both related to the organization of society in different ways. And um, we heard people saying several times, I'm not political. You know, I didn't know that this was happening. Was torture happening while you were a minister? Oh, n no. It was news to me. Why? Because I didn't, that wasn't my job to do. This is inconceivable, apart from being intellectually dishonest. And so the answer to your question is, unfortunately, what was started at the point of a gun created conditions for lasting change in Chilean society, which have resulted uh, certainly in certain level of, you know, Chile is a modern country integrated to the world, economy 
and some people have made a huge amount of money and you can see it in the streets as you saw in the pictures of the buildings, new buildings, etc. But the vast majority of people do not share in that uh, uh, situation. And so uh, somebody there said, oh, we have a, a, um, um, a $20,000 per capita income, but ask anyone <laughs> where are their $20,000? Because obviously, you know, as there was a Chilean poet uh, called Nicanor Parra, and it says, uh, we have, uh, I have two eggs, and uh, you have none. So I eat two eggs, the other one, but the average is one. Mm -hmm. This is the situation. Um, I think that's enough of an answer, I think, because I think we want to touch other aspects, I'm sure. Um, well, I was, incidentally, um, I wanted to talk a bit about um, the societal changes that happened around the time. And uh, we don't really address that shift. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about what it was like to live uh, under uh, Allende's regime? Uh, mm -hmm. I don't want to really want to say regime, but government, really. Um, how much of a shift was there suddenly uh, societal, not only economical, but in, in, th in the way the country operated? What were you trying to hark back to? Right. I think we have to go before Allende, in fact, because what ha was happening in the world, uh, even in Britain, was, remember, the welfare state in Britain started after the war. Well, in Chile, uh, we didn't participate in the war, but there was certainly an economic policy uh, of import substitution industrialization. Basically, we wanted to industrialize the country, and that meant that we had to make TV sets. We had to, at least if not make whole cars, but at least arm the cars in our country. And that's what the country, that was the path of development that the country took. Um, how was it felt as a person? Well, I, um, was a student in the 60s. We had free education at the level of uh, school and university. Um, I came as a refugee to Britain, uh, having been uh, a medical student for two years before the coup, and I had to leave the country. Uh, I was in prison for a while. And uh, my level of education allowed me to continue without any problems, my education here. I got a PhD and I managed to. So uh, our country was producing or giving opportunities to people that uh, allow them to uh, fulfill themselves. Now, we were a poor country. I mean, there's no, and is it true what one of the Chicago boys says, that it was a sort of gray country. There wasn't, it wasn't full of flashy buildings and all that. But uh, we had two Nobel Prizes in literature, Pablo Neruda and Gabriela Mistral, and we were proud of that rather than, you know, uh, how many dollars per capita w we were supposed to have. Fair enough. Um, and just kind of out of curiosity, I mean, I will go back to the, I want to talk a bit about the, the more recent events in, in Chile, um, <coughs> but <coughs> how um, popular are these economic policies amongst um, amongst people in the country? I know a lot of people suffer from their consequences, but I'm comparing it to, say, even Britain, where uh, there's, a, there's a big disconnect between the way people live and um, how they understand the economic policies that govern the way they live. So in Chile, are people... Um, are these policies, uh, pop is the system popular with Chileans? Would they, when they, um, um, well, I mean, I wanted to, to go back to this afterwards, but let's just say um, in 2019, we saw a big uprising um, and there was a clear will amongst the people to change the conditions there. How popular was that amongst the citizens of the country? This is a very difficult question for me to answer because I live here now, although I visit the country every year for at least two months. Uh, so, But I look at the country from outside, and it's difficult to answer for the following reason. It's quite obvious that uh, a choice was made, and I think we have to go back to the immediate 
post-dictatorship period because a conscious decision was made by the parties of the left that previously had supported Allende to not change the economic model that Pinochet had uh, installed. It was, a, it was not consulted with the people. It was done at the popular level. And uh, uh, so, the obviously, so how much support did it have? Well, it had enough support for governments to be elected that said that they were going to keep this economic model because it was producing certain goods. But what is the economic, I mean, I want to say Chile is primarily a, a country, an exporter of uh, minerals. I mean, the added value of the products that Chile has is still minimal, even after all this uh, neoliberal revolution. So before, in the, in the 1800s, we produced, and in early 1900s, we produced nitrates. Chile was the first exporter of nitrates in the world, which was the main fertilizer for agriculture at the time. Mm -hmm. So the wealth of Chile was, again, for a tiny minority, uh, uh, and in fact, British, uh, um, uh, um, uh, in the case, uh, there was a, the baron of nitrate was a guy called uh, North, I forgot his name, uh, and there was a, you know, a, a civil war, a revolution, mm -hmm. where another president was overthrown, President Balmaceda, in 1891, as, as a result of interests that he wanted to change the situation of ownership of the minerals. In the case of Allende, Allende nationalized copper. Chile is the first, the, 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 the uh, world first producer of copper. It was then and it is still now. And, but the ownership of the mines was in the hands of foreign multinational companies. Mm -hmm. So the very fact that these two presidents attempted to change this model of uh, development resulted in huge uh, upheavals in the country. Thank you. Um, I'm actually going to segue slightly towards you, John, because uh, you mentioned British involvement. I know, John, um, I don't know if it's via that angle that you uh, started to research the topic, but I know that in your work you've explored the British um, influence, I guess, in terms of what happened in Chile. Could you talk a bit about a bit more about that. What's Britain's role in this? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um. Well, the 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 route that I kind of took into looking into British foreign policy in Chile, um, was in early 2020, in January 2020, actually, um, and it was maybe three weeks after the declassification into the UK National Archives, um, of over sorry of over 10,000 doc uh, files, um, which related to a secret um Foreign Office unit named the Information Research Department. Um, and this opened up a kind of um, a whole new avenue of kind of research in Latin America, but particularly in Chile, um, because what these files revealed um, was that the UK government had been covertly interfering in Chile um, against Salvador Allende for almost a decade prior to him being first elected in 1970. Um, so, I mean, obviously many people know about the US role in destabilizing Chile and destabilizing the economy. Um, covert operations against Allende and also the support to the Pinochet regime. Um, and I mean, uh, some of the documents were referenced in the film, like the Church Committee, for example, which exposed the, the not the full range, but the wide range of CIA covert operations against um, Allende during the 60s and 70s. Um, but what these documents showed us, it wasn't just the US participating in these kinds of activities in Chile. Um, and the British government was actually one of the key players in trying to prevent Allende from ever coming to power um, and also trying to destabilise him once he was in power. Um, so I'll just briefly explain what the IRD was for those who, who don't know what it was. Um, so it was a secret propaganda unit within the British Foreign Office. Um, it was so secret that, you know, of course, members of the public didn't know about it, but most members of Parliament didn't know about it either. Um, it was only known by like a select group of diplomats, um, spooks and high-ranking Foreign Office officials. Um, and what it did basically was collect information on communism and left-wing organisation activities um, and produce all forms of informational activity and distribute it worldwide to agents of influence, so military figures, politicians, journalists, trade unionists, student uh, organisations and so on and so forth. 
Um, and the idea was to build resilience against left-wing activities worldwide, um, but also to cultivate agents of influence in foreign, com uh, in foreign countries. Um, but during the early 1960s, and partic particularly 1962, um, and this is four years after Allende almost, almost wins a presidential election in Chile, the IRD's activities in Latin America intensify massively, and they start sending out IRD specialist officers called field officers, who are tasked with engaging in covert propaganda activities, so placing information in the press, um, providing either true or false information to certain groups in order to split the left in Chile, um, and also to support Allende's foremost political opponents. So in that time, in the 1964 election, it was with Eduardo Frey. Um, and so what, what these documents revealed for the first time, whereas we had information about what the CIA was up to since the 70s, that the UK was also engaged in these kinds of covert um, activities. Um, and this didn't just occur during the 60s, it happened in the 70s as well during the Allende presidency. Um, but even more recently declassified files in, in early 2022 have shown that in the immediate aftermath of the coup, um, the British government actively uh, facilitated Chile's military intelligence um, by way of uh, uh, disseminating material um, on, on British counterinsurgency operations across um, Southeast Asia, particularly Malaya, um, which, as many of you will know, was a brutal counterinsurgency campaign it involved the resettlement of over 500,000 civilians, um, mass, obviously mass internment, um, brutal repression, including beheadings and so on and so forth. Um, so so th the, the colonial policing model that Britain was using across Southeast Asia and also Africa um, was, was being taught to Latin America's and particularly Chile's military intelligence. Um, and following that, I mean, we, the, 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 there's a relationship, as many of you know, between Margaret Thatcher and Augusto Pinochet, um, which we can get on to, to later. But, but th that was the avenue, basically, that I got, got into with regards to British foreign policy um, in Chile. And more out of curiosity, and now I'm worried I might have missed any mention of that, but how, uh, what was their corrupt, I mean, bo b both the US and Britain um, intervened to destabilize the country and create the coup, but uh, did they cooperate um, in terms of liaising with, um, or rather coordinating that kind of um, influence, in influential thought process, um, uh, teaching of economics, and also covert propaganda and so on. Yeah, well the, the extent of British collaboration with the US, um, so basically in the, in the declassified files, you have what was an IRD annual report, and it was basically a template where they spoke about what kind of covert operations they were up to, uh, what kind of communist activities were happening. And uh, when you get to point F, which was collaboration with the CIA, redacted, um, massive black, uh, sometimes full pages, sometimes much smaller. Um, the, the UK government is um, comprehensively refusing to release um, the material on its collaboration with the CIA. Um, but you can kind of piece together some kind of um, collaboration in, in certain fields. So they assisted... Um, US-based media organizations or CIA-funded media organizations in Chile, such as Forum World Features, um, which basically was sent to uh, Chile to report on uh, the first years of uh, the Allende government and obviously, you know, slag it off and say it was terrible, the economy is awful. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, the, the extent of British collaboration with the US is, is, is unclear. There obviously was a certain extent of collaboration. But what's quite interesting is recently... And this only came out via um, a court battle in Australia. It was found that the Australian Secret Intelligence Service opened up a station in, in Santiago in 1971, and their core role was basically to act as proxies to the CIA, to basically assist the CIA in its covert destabilisation operations. Um, but what we know is that MI6 had a station in the British Embassy in Santiago since the 1960s, was engaged in all of the kind of meddling during the 1960s. Um, and we know that in 1972, a CIA officer called David Spedding was posted to Chile. Um, he would go on to head MI6 between 1994 and 1999. Um, so he was posted there before, during and after the coup. He finally left Chile in 1974 when the Labour Party came back to power. And they, they closed down the MI6 station in Santiago because they didn't want, with the change of British policy to, to Chile, 
They didn't want the Pinochet regime to think that it was engaging in covert destabilization campaigns against it, which kind of suggests what they were up to at the time <laughs> when it was open. Yeah. Um, so, we, so we know the MI6 station was there, but there's been no documents declassified about what it was actually up to. Um, but given the US's um, historic collaboration with Britain, um, given Britain's typical role in um, you know, anti-left-wing activity abroad and suppression of left-wing movements, um, I would be amazed if A, the CIA didn't request assistance from MI6 in Chile, and B, if Britain said no. Well, um, I just want to ask one question before I, I um, pass the mic uh, to the audience. In regards to this, do you, would you be able to tell us more about the situation today in terms of, of intervention, I guess, or influence? Um, have has Britain been involved at all in uh, recent events in Chile in anything post-2019? Um, um, has there been any sort of activity there that might have... Uh well, I mean, I'm not, <coughs> I'm not as much... I don't have as much knowledge in general about the, the present day. I'm more focused on history. But, um, I mean, Chile at the moment... I mean, there was a, there was a recent coup in Bolivia... And Bolivia, alongside Chile, is one of the great has one of the greatest um, reserves of lithium in the world. Um, and the de as a colleague at Declassified UK found that Britain kind of assisted and supported the coup in Bolivia in order to get his hands on what they called the white gold, um, the lithium. So there's a key interest, there's a key material interest at the moment in Chile, um, which is its lithium, and of course the copper, <coughs> the copper interests remain. Yeah. Um, and James Cleverly, of course, recently went, the Foreign Secretary recently went to Santiago and, uh, you know, brought out all, all the old stories. Um, you know, Britain is uh, Chile's oldest friends because Britain, you know, contributed to some degree in the, in, in the wars of independence, if not for independence itself, but, but in order to supplant the Spanish as the main economic power in the region. But nonetheless, it, it plays off this historic role. Mm. Um, so, so, you know, the Britain still has uh, material interests. We also know that during the, the Piñera years that Britain was selling um, arms that it knew could be used for internal repression um, to the Chilean government, which were then used and, you know, people's eyes were being shot out. There was horrendous uh, repression and Britain was, you know, profiting from this as, you know, it, it generally profits from conflict abroad because it's one of the ma world's leading arms manu manufacturers. So there's, you know, there's a number of interests. Um, I, I imagine Britain isn't particularly keen on Boric, but... On I don't know much particularly about about any covert. Yeah, we'll have to wait another. Fi well, judging on judging on judging on the latest declassification, we'll have to wait at least sixty years actually. So yeah, yeah, because yeah, a lot of the files from the sixties are actually still classified. So yeah, yeah, it was interesting to see whether or not geopolitically things had changed to an extent where Britain just didn't want to bother with any of that <laughs> anymore, but focused on on internal issues or another part of the world um thank you very much i'm gonna give it over to um to the audience we already have a, a hand there the roving mic's just gonna come to you and then someone in the middle there just thank you uh thank you very much uh quick so my question is in the film there's reference and you've also referenced it as well both of you um, the economic situation under Allende b that l was used as a basis for the coup. Uh, and you've, uh, John, mentioned some of the... Uh, you've referenced the fact that there were covert operations to destabilize. But there hasn't been any actual... Could you give any... Either of you give any kind of details to the type of things that were done both from foreign actors like the United States and from within Chile as well, in order to destabilize the country? I mean, most people may be aware of the fact that there's a famous note that Richard Nixon, the president, wrote to the head of the CIA saying, make the economy scream, in reference to after Allende was elected. But what does that mean in practice? Well, um, to start with, yes, that was done, by the way, even before Allende took power. This was uh, the result of a meeting between the, uh, it was referenced in the film also, the uh, owner of the largest right-wing newspaper called El Mercurio, with the head of Coca or Pepsi-Cola, who was a friend, personal friend of Nixon. And this was between the election of Allende on the 4th of September 1970 
and the assumption to power of uh, uh, Allende in, on, I think it was October the something. So this meeting took place within days of the uh, election, winning the election, but before Allende actually took power. Uh, now, that's crucial because it shows that the attempt was to not to allow a democratically elected government to fulfill its mandate to the people, including its economic program, which was open, obviously, because if you're going to win an election, you have to say what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. So nationalization of copper was part of it. And uh, again, um, somebody said, or some, someone said, one American president said that Ameri America has interest. It doesn't have friends, it has interests. And in ca the case of Chile, it's quite clear. Now, what did they do? They subverted the whole economy from the very beginning. For example, the price of copper was manipulated at the international level uh, from, the, from the beginning. Uh, loans were denied to Allende's government at the time. The, uh, the when the strikes began, strikes were created artificially by funding the strikers to be on strike. And this happens to the lorry owners in 1972 that were paid a salary to be on strike with American dollars. Okay, so obviously a country that is a small country, but it is a very long country without the track the trucks working and moving the goods on the country, the country grinds to a halt, which it did. So there was a huge lack of foods, uh, no uh, uh, fuel for, for transport. The, the country was virtually paralyzed. And uh, it's interesting that before, in the very first year of Allende, there was a huge increase in production before the effect of the American uh, uh, intervention in the economy. And uh, not only that, Allende, who was elected with uh, 36 uh, and something percent of, of the vote, increased votes in the municipal election to 50.5% uh, of the vote. In spite of all this action, this sabotage of the economy, Allende ended his government with 43% of the vote, with the whole economy collapsing as, as it was. So it was quite clear that uh, the people of Chile were not entirely fooled by this uh, intervention in the, in, the, in the democratic process in Chile. Thank you very much. Uh, did you want to add anything, John? Just, just a, a very brief one on, on the just simply one example, because we've just published a Article t today in Declassified, uh, we interviewed Pab uh, sorry, Salvador Allende's uh, grandson, Pablo Allende. And in, in that article, we reference one recently declassified file from 1969. And the IRD field officer is basically saying, um, in order to encourage people to vote against Allende, they're encouraging Chileans to believe that there would be foreign interference against him. So they're basically, in order to, in a really kind of like sin sinisterly paradoxical way, in order to prevent a coup, um, don't vote for him because you know the US are probably going to get involved here. So, um, so this is a kind of um, dedication that the British government had to democracy at this point. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, we had uh, someone there. Uh, uh, there, yeah, just a hand in the third row. Thank you. Um, just wanted to make a comment about the movie. It's incredible that these Chicago boys who were training on neoliberalism, which was all about competition, in fact, work together, study together, help each other, have great parties, even though they had different political you know, sides. And uh, that wasn't picked up by anybody. It was like, hang on a second, they are giving this school of Chicago a demonstration on how to work together, help each other, and and go ahead as a as a team, and um, and they were baffled. Another thing was that the minister that said that he didn't notice there were all these deaths uh, uh, reminds me of, of the Nazi officials. A lot of people in the Nazi that said, oh "Well, we 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 couldn't hear 
you know, we saw all these trains with Jewish, but we couldn't imagine what was going to happen. It's incredible, the lack of self-reflection and also noticing the reality on all these people. They have tried the same things to Venezuela. They, they did try to with, with Chavez and now with Maduro. Um, funny enough, in Venezuela, the, the coup d'etat, the first coup d'etat against Chavez was or organized by the media, uh, certain societies, some military men, and obviously the mem uh, the, the son of the person who got the Pepsi-Cola <laughs> concession in Venezuela too. <laughs> so it's not far off. And and they haven't been able to, to defeat Venezuela. So I, I guess that's um, despite using exactly the same recipe. So I think that's something positive. Thank you very much. Yeah, there is a sense I felt in the film that it's kind of people playing God a little bit, uh, philosophizing and coming up with, with, with these theories um, without any care of their impact on the ground. Um, I don't know if you, if you wanted to add anything to, to that comment, either of you. Just, just very briefly, I mean, the other, the other contradiction of neoliberalism is the extent to which it relies on state funding. And these, these, these guys went to the US on a kind of scholarship um, with US state funding. Um, and obviously, that, that, that what grew out of that was the Chicago Boys. So that's another contradiction inherent. That's a, that's a good point. Um, thank you very much. Do we have any other? Yes, I see a hand there, and then I'll come back to you. Yes, please. Thanks. Um, I just wondered if the panel had any um, thoughts about whether any of these old men in the film could ever be brought to justice. Um, I think they all should be in prison, probably, for collaborating with a genocidal regime. Well, um, yes, they should, but whether they will, I doubt it. Um, it's interesting that what happened in Chile, I, I think Britain, we all knew about Pinochet's detention here in London. So the case of Pinochet's crimes were quite well uh, uh, discussed in the press and known by the people here. Uh, however, it is presented as if it was the military that uh, did all of this. But in the film itself, uh, very surprisingly, uh, Sergio de Castro, who was the main writer of the brick, El Ladrillo, was said, well, we are, you know, you were commissioned this document to do what? And he said, well, I didn't know. Well, maybe it was a, for something, but I don't know for what. That is absolutely unbelievable. So the participation, the, the, the connivance of the civilians, right-wing civilians in the whole process is absolutely proven. You know, they participated at all times. I mean, Agustin Edwards meeting with Nixon, uh, a foreign government, a Chilean, betraying his own country by meeting the president of another country. And all of this information being released in documents by the United States. I mean, I'm sometimes surprised by how democratic the United States it is that it lets us know 50 years afterwards of all of what it has done to other countries. But thanks to that release of documents and to the documents that John uh, has had access to, declassified documents in Britain, we are learning the history 50 years after. And 50 years after, very often the people are dead, the people that are responsible. So we don't have the justice that is necessary. Thank you very much. Uh, John, did you want to add anything? Thank you. Um, and yes, sir, here, uh, third row, please. Thank you. Um, how important do you think the uh, neoliberal experiment in Chile was for the adoption of neoliberal economics by Thatcher and Reagan um, a few years later and that we're living with still? Uh, Margaret Thatcher sell, uh, sent Cecil Parkinson to investigate the um, advantages of the model being done in Chile. That's all I know. 
and I think it's it's uh, uh, very early on actually. I think Keith Joseph was remember the the the, the person who was inspiring Margaret Thatcher to follow the Friedmanite uh, policies, but. Uh, it was Cecil Parkinson that went to investigate what was going on in Chile very early on during her government. Yeah, and, and even before her government, there was people like um, Alan Walters, I believe, um, during the mid-1970s, who was going over and basically studying what was happening in Chile. He would go on to be one of Thatcher's key economic advisors. Um, and, you know, they, th it wasn't just the, the, the neoliberalism. I mean, she, she looked at Chile as... Um, with inspiration in, in the way that it, it dealt with. I mean, they, they both had such contempt for the left um, that she really saw it as a, as a kind of model in various different ways. Um, and I think that Thatcher and Pinochet are, are also um, link, linked in, su in such a concrete way because obviously in 1982 there was the Falklands War. Um, and prior to the Falklands War, Thatcher was the, the least popular UK Prime Minister since records had begun. Um, after the war, she, she became one of the most popular, according to the records, and obviously went on to remain um, Prime Minister for the next eight years. Um, and Pinochet's support during that war was, was massive. I mean, the, the Chilean regime shared um, military intelligence. Apparently, they might have even shared the coordinates of the Belgrano. Um, Chilean air, air Force bases were used by the Brits. Um, and there was an, uh, just wide military um, collaboration between Chile and Britain during the Falklands War, for which um, Argentinians still very much remember. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's, there's a decent case to, uh, to say that Pinochet, to some degree, um, uh, it was, was, was responsible for Thatcher's re-election and her very political success. Um, and, you know, that, that friendship obviously endured well into the late 90s when she was visiting... Um, him in the hospital when she was visiting when he was under house arrest um, in Surrey after the extradition um, case had been opened in 1998. Um, and she was his most staunch public defender in, in Britain at the time. Um, I mean, some of her former um, uh, ministers, Norman Lamont, for example, also defended him. But she was the most high-profile public defender. So, yeah, I mean, economically they, they studied... Uh, what Pinochet was doing in Chile, and they and they found inspiration in it. But I think there was a wider economic and political model um, that that she she supported as well, and that you know really came came into reality during the time that they were both in power. Thank you. Um, <coughs> yes, we have a lady in the fr in front. Thank you. Um, hi, thank you. Um, my name is Ruby, um, and um, I've um <coughs> enjoyed the uh, film in a sort of inverted commas way, because it's a um, very powerful image of what we already know, um, or some of us know. Um, the striking thing for me is um, how clearly we are shown the um, development of this dichotomy where one part or the polarization if you like one part of the country does one thing the other one does something else and there's no connection between them and they well one part doesn't know inverted commas again about what happens in the other part whereas the the other part knows exactly what's going on over there but they haven't got access now that is the neoliberalism um, uh, project which I think has been terribly successful, um, and it's permeated to the base of the country, um, and it's really sad to see. Um, I visit regularly. I don't get very much involved, but even if I don't want to get involved, I still see it and I still feel it. Um, and that is that people are well have turned eventually over the years, quick, uh, quickly and slowly, to just a very selfish group of people. Um, and it's really sad to see where the selfishness is not so much because I want to be selfish, um, but because I don't want to know, a bit like these boys, um, because I can't really take on any more of the suffering or the struggles or the battles. Um, people work hard. They may have two jobs, three jobs, and they don't really earn enough 
to survive. They barely just survive. Um, but they're also very interested in acquiring things. And there is, you know, the need to have more and more and to pay for that. And that is really, really painful to watch. Um, so you want to speak to people about, you know, what that might mean, but there's no possibility because there's no really clear education in order for you to have good education. You have to have money to pay for it. Um, you, you, you can't be critical because the critical thinking has also been thwarted. You know, there was only one policy and there was no opposition or no criticism that would be accepted. And that's still the case. Uh, debate is not something that you can find easily. I mean, if people start to have a discussion and they you know, have differences of opinions, things start to get very heated very quickly. So you, know, you can see that. So that's kind of going back to your question initially. You know, how has all this model permeated mm -hmm. to, to the society or to just common people? Um, this is what I observed. I'm not a social scientist. I just see it and, s and feel it. Thank you very much for an interesting point. I don't know if either of you want to um, comment on, on that. Maybe we'll Anything wait to yeah. yeah? I totally agree with what you said. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, we'll just, yes, we'll hand shot up just there. Um, I, ju I just want to say, really, uh, in in terms of this selfishness, you know, I've never been to Chile, but I see it all the time in this country, how selfish, how cruel uh, we have become and, and what we ex what we now find acceptable in, in terms of drowning people in the sea. So we are as infected by this neoliberalism project as, as Chile has become. Um, and just, just a, a plug for another film, there's a film out at the moment called The Count, which portrays Pinochet as a vampire and Thatcher as a vampire. Um, um, so I recommend people to go and see that. It, it seems both fantastical and all too true. Have you actually seen? Have you seen the? I've film? seen it. Yeah, it's it's uh, Curzon Bloomsbury. It's going to be on Netflix, but it, it's an it's quite an extraordinary film. Um, Thatcher turns out to be uh, Pinochet's vampire mother in it. So I, I it, it does feel rather um, true, as I say. Yeah, I was going to ask about <laughs> the release of the film, if anyone had seen it. Thank you for the uh, very timely. Do we have any other questions in the audience? We've not been kicked out, so um, yes. Yes, please. Um, uh, uh, sorry, Mike at the front, please. Thank you. I, I just wanted to um, uh, uh, mention that when we talk about neoliberalism, people tend to think about an economic model. But it's more than that. It's an economic model, it's a political model, and it's a cultural model. And, and that is the terrible thing, because it's it, it, it brings about, in order to fulfill, or to get successful, it has to change the mind and the feelings and the heart of people, and it does it very successfully. And as you say that, people in this quest for more money become more and more individualistic, more selfish. And and it's terrible because as humans it, it dehumanizes people. And, and and that's the sad thing about it. It's certainly um it's very successful economically for certain people, but it's a terrible, terrible system for the majority of the people in the countries where this is so successful. And that is sadly this of my country today and of England as well I have to say in a way and other countries where this is being implemented yeah and given the the, the power of the countries that have implemented it sadly it's it's international isn't it a and you're right the majority of people suffer from that model and you would think therefore it just wouldn't work there would be enough of a revolt um, but the success lies in convincing people that it's the only model out there is the only way to live that's acceptable there's no such a thing as, such as a society and and that is really is the essence of, of that yeah. yeah that's a very good point thank you um just a, an aside it makes me think if any of you haven't seen it it's it's really worth watching how 
that kind of model of thought co-opts everything. It's um, the, what is his name now? Uh, the Documentary Century of the Self. Thank you, Adam Curtis, Century of the Self, which shows how uh, even counterculture and, and things like the hippie movement were in the end co-opted by, by this line of thought to make them very much about the individual. But anyway, I'm, I'm complete aside, it's worth watching. Um, do we have any other questions or comments or did anyone have anything to ask our guests? Ah, yes, one question in the middle of the row. Just a very, very small uh, observation. Um, education. Um, the new, the new generations uh, that didn't experience anything about the, the, the life before the coup, and uh, that take everything that is happening as normal, as the, as, as the things, as the things are now. Then that's, that's how they are. They don't question. They don't criticize. There is no. There is no uh, critic, critical thinking. And there was uh, somewhere, somewhere else was talking, not here, uh, about the, the failure of education to, to be wide enough and to be deep enough to, to start moving people, people who are now in their 40s, 50s. Yeah? The, the 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 young people seems to have found somewhere how to how to move forward, but the middle the middle aged people that that's is, is sort of a, is breaking putting the brakes on, um, and some other I remember mentioned that uh, there is no civic education in in Chile. At the beginning, I said, what has to do? Well, I did have <laughs> civic education. <laughs> where you are told the, the workings, the basic workings of democracy. These people don't have them, don't have them. So it's, it's very difficult if you don't have a vision of how things could be, or how things, or you are basic rights. And yeah, only that. Thank you very much, it's a very good comment. Um, do we have any, I'm mindful of the time, but because my colleagues haven't come in yet <laughs> to give us a five minute warning, um, the room's still yours if anyone wants to add anything to this. Um, if not, oh yes. Yeah, of course. It's very dark out there, so <laughs> I can there see There is that. a book which has been re-edited. Um, it was produced at the time of the Pinochet affair in uh, in England, is called Pinochet in Piccadilly. Um, it is written by a fellow who is a columnist with the Guardian. I can't remember his name at the moment. That's the only problem. But is Andy Beckett. That's it. Well, I can I can I. It, the book is particularly strong on the relationship between Pinochet and the conservative government of Margaret Thatcher and um, <coughs> presents a lot of um, information on that. My only other point is that the film that we saw doesn't emphasize enough two uh, facts. One is that the Chilean economy, the national um, product, went down systematically for at least four years after the dictatorship. And the recovery that they claim didn't get the levels of the 1973 until a lot later. So that is one economic element which is unmistakable because the figures are there. And the second element is that the Chilean economy really went up after Pinochet with the, with the um, arrival of the post-dictatorship political regimes and there is when the Chilean economy really prospered, because before the times, before during the times of the dictatorship, that wasn't the case. 
and what De Castro and others were saying there in the film is not true, simply is not true. Unfortunately, the film doesn't emphasize that strongly enough. And being a good film has got some um, e economic um, or, or problems into the presentation of economic information. Thank you. Thank you very much. And and it's good to have comments about the actual film itself as well, the way it's made, if, any, if you feel it's left anything out or things it's emphasised. So it's good to hear. Um, thank you very much. Do we have one final question or comment for the road? Or either of our guests? Of course, of course, go for it. There was one thing I was supposed to mention much earlier, I think. Is that me and Roberto's son, Pablo Navarretti, um, we're working on a new documentary um, called Britain and the other 9-11 um, and it's centred obviously around the coup but it's a it's a 40 year history of British covert interference in Chile between 1960 and 2000 and um, we went to Santiago uh, in June to do filming there we interviewed um, the relatives of British nationals who were persecuted and, and killed by the Pinochet regime um, torture survivors, um, leading journalists, former officials um, and we're, we're we're filming in the UK right now this week, in fact. Um, and yeah, so it's based on a lot of the recently declassified files, but also um, those that were, you know, um, had direct experience of the dictatorship and who were um, persecuted by it as well. So um, there's there's flyers outside. If if anyone is willing and able to support it, that would be very much appreciated. Yeah, it's these that just outside the the the, the, the screen. The other side. Oh, where am I showing? Oh, there we go. <laughs> Wrong film. <laughs> uh, the flies are just outside the cinema on the little table where the plant is, uh, if you want to grab them on your way out. Um, on this note, thank you so much to my guests, uh, Roberto and John. Big round of applause for coming and speaking. Thank you very much to you all for staying. That was a really great discussion. Thank you to the Garden Cinema, to my colleagues, and to Alborada for helping organize this screening. Have a lovely evening, everyone.